Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the rifles. In this episode, we learn what it really means to have to lead by example. In the end, I thought, actually, the best thing I can do now here is to do the actions myself. I'm asking someone to do something which is pretty unpleasant. I'll do, I'll do it myself and therefore hopefully articulate that I'm also prepared to do it. We find out why ground truth is critical in understanding intent. When a person is shooting back at you, it's quite an easy situation to deal with because everyone then instantly knows the intent. This wasn't that scenario. This was a scenario fueled by compassion and empathy, I suppose. This was a scenario that is quite hard to determine unless you were there at the time. At the lowest possible level, they had the most outrageous responsibility. And we learn why leaders need to offer clear guidance in rapidly changing situations. And then this American dude rocked up on a little e-bike and said, don't, don't shoot, they're friendly Taliban. And I think that was where one of the sergeants was like, what's a friendly Taliban? This episode is slightly different to other episodes of The Human Advantage in that we are speaking to two people and framing it around a single operation. Major Chris Dunkarf and Warrant Officer Class 2 Adam Croucher worked together as the Officer Commanding, or OC, and Company Sergeant Major, or CSM, respectively, of A Company 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. A Company 2 Para were the lead company of the Air Manoeuvre Task Force as part of 16 Air Assault Brigade. This is the British Army's Very High Readiness Unit, which exists to respond to crises around the world. In August 2021, they deployed to Afghanistan on Operation Pitting, the non-combatant evacuation operation, or NEO, that would get eligible people out of Afghanistan, such as former interpreters for the British military, in the event of a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Op Pitting marked the end of 20 years of British military involvement in Afghanistan following the Al-Qaeda attacks on the United States in September 2001. In this episode, we explore what Adam and Chris did in the run-up to op pitting to prepare their company for likely operations. We look at their insertion into Afghanistan and the way the operation progressed. We explore the challenges of the operation from a junior leadership perspective and look at how commander's intent, mission command, responsibility, judgment and adaptability are vital in the chaos of a rapidly changing operational environment. Just a bit of a content warning. This episode discusses the closing chapter of British operations in Afghanistan, with reflections on losses during that entire time. It discusses the tragic deaths of desperate civilians and the experiences of desperate people in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. We also discuss psychological trauma and moral injury. I started by asking Adam, who was the CSM at the time, about his experiences of Afghanistan and how they shaped his career. So I think my first experience in Afghanistan was at the start of 2002. I was in training in 2001. I was on P Company week when 9-11 happened. So my career literally got thrust straight into the war on terror. 
So I went to Kabul in 2002 and it was called Opfingal then. It was at a stage where Kabul had just ended an era of however many decades under Taliban control. It was very derelict. The people were very unhappy. And it was really the start of my journey. And then obviously I went onto several Herrick tours and then ended up on Op Pitted in well, two years ago from today. Really has been the whole of your career. And Chris, how about you? Had you been to Afghanistan before in more junior roles as an officer? Yeah, so I first went to Afghanistan as a platoon commander in the winter of 2009, spring 2010. And then I went back again in the winter of 2013 in spring 2014. Two very different experiences. The 2009-2010 was at um, the height of the lethal combative stage. And then the 13-14 tour was the point where we were transitioning to Afghan-led security. Um, It felt at the time when I left actually quite, um, it felt like progress had been made. It looked like Afghans had control and we were closing the bases down. So it was, that tour was very, very different. And uh, and then uh, pitting couldn't be more different to either of those two. So both of you saw all the different phases of British operations in Afghanistan, the very combative fighting phases, and also the transitioning phases where you're starting to return more control and fighting capability to the Afghan National Army and Afghan police. Did either of you expect to go back to Afghanistan around the time that pitting was starting to happen? I suppose in countries as unstable as ones like Afghanistan, you always expect that something is going to happen. And I think the few months before we went on pitting, there were rumours that Afghanistan might become quite unstable in the next few months. We were on an air mover task force at the time, and we were also on lead company group as part of that. And so we went on an exercise a few months before Operation Pitting called Op Fortis, We spent a few weeks in Cyprus, and during our weeks in Cyprus, there was an understanding that a recce had gone out to Afghanistan to like dot the I's and cross the T's to something that could be up and coming in the next few months. So there were rumblings. I don't think any of us actually thought that it would be us out there. When did you two first start working together as the company commander and the company sergeant major? Because Chris, you came into company command for two power from... Royal Anglians. So you didn't have that time in the battalion already. How did you two get to know each other and start to build a working relationship? So I had taken over as company commander in September the previous year. And I mean, you arrived in what, was it March or was it April? We deployed on Op Fortis at the back end of May 21. So we were instantly thrown into the planning of Op Fortis, what that looks like. And I think we literally built our relationship from there. I think we both saw eye to eye initially on most of the aspects to do with training, logistics, planning. And I think our relationship built from there. And then on Op Fortis, we obviously worked even closer together. We built an even bigger relationship. So by the time Op Pitting came around, we had a good understanding of how each other worked. We understood each other and it kind of just blossomed from there. When the notification came through that you guys were going to go on pitting. I think the company was on leave at the time, was it? What was that like? And I'd be interested to know how that worked in the mindset that you guys have in 16 Air Assault Brigade. It's not an uncommon thing that if you're a member of 16 Brigade and probably more pertinent, the Parachute Regiment, that you've always got a mindset 
of you're always on 48 hours notice to move. And that is that is a luxury being on 48 hours notice to move. Obviously, we got back from Op Fortis and we were already packed, ready to go. So all we had to do was turn around a few things. We understood the task. We knew what we had to do. We knew what we had to pack for. And we just literally got ourselves ready before we went on leave. So if it did happen, we were in a good place to come back off leave, not have to deal with too much stuff, to get on a coach to South Cerny and to go. And so does that help a lot in leadership, just getting all of that information down early? Because then you can pass it down to the platoon commanders, sergeants, and then they can pass it down from there. I think it does, as long as it's balanced. Because throughout all of the weeks leading up to Pitin, there was never any certainty that it was definitely going to happen. And there was no certainty over how many people would actually be required. So I'm trying to maintain a balance between we might be asked to do this, but equally we might find that we're not required and and we don't go. So that was partly the decision then to, at the start of the summer leave period, say, right, actually we will stand down and we'll allow people to go back to their homes and see their families because we might find that in three weeks' time we're all coming back into barracks, everything's blown over and it's no longer a thing or it's still trundling along. But the worst thing I think we possibly could have done is just sat around waiting and not making use of that time, albeit making use of that time, go and see your families, which is still hugely important. So that's a really good insight. When you're on high readiness, as all soldiers want to do is to go on operations. You don't want to promise them something and then have them just sitting around. Whereas you could have achieved exactly the same effect by them doing something else they wanted to do, which is see their families. And then if the operation happens, then they can still get to do it. it you're, you're not taking anything away from them by doing that and you're keeping them in a good mindset. I never had any doubt that as soon as we got the news that we were going to go, I never had any doubt that anyone wouldn't turn up. And as we found, the, the problem wasn't people not turning up, it was more people turning up trying to get a place when perhaps there weren't places available for them to go. So knowing that everybody wanted to go actually made it really easy to say, right, well, in that case... Um, We've got no certainty, so let's let's do what we can do, which is right now, go and spend a bit of time with your families. So the operation that Pitting was, was called a NEO, which is a non-combatant evacuation operation. And that was a likely task for you guys in 16 Brigade, and particularly as the first company to move out. You landed with A Company 2 Para on the 14th of August. But in that time, in that 96 hours, things had changed quite a lot. And I think the day before you were going for a run around the airfield, is that right? Yes, so the, the day that the rest of A Company arrived, that morning I got up, I went for a run, came back in, dropped sports kit off at the laundry. It was clear the situation was um, looking a bit precarious, but Kabul was still under the control of the Afghan security forces. And in my mind, I didn't see that part of it changing. Then by about lunchtime, then it was clear actually the situation changed significantly. There were sightings of uh, the Afghan security forces who were manning the various guard towers around the base, leaving those guard towers. There was reports of Taliban right on the outskirts, potentially in Kabul itself. And and then as that continued to develop, then you start to be able to hear uh, gunfire. And then there was further rumours of various various events taking place. And the tasks that we prepared for then started changing very rapidly to account for a changing situation of, oh no, actually, we're probably going to have to defend the perimeter here. And we don't know what it looks like at this stage. At this stage, we don't know, is this going to turn into a contested evacuation or not? So it all became quite uh, 
yeah, the words you used earlier, dynamic, would amply describe it. And what was it like for you and the company when you arrived? How did you prepare them for what they might encounter when they landed? Obviously, we got recalled back to Merville Barracks on like the 12th or 13th of August. And I suppose in a unit like ours, you're always ready to do something. So the process is quite swept up. We've got a big hangar in the middle of Merville Barracks. And we got called back. We all paraded at the hangar. We went and got all our kit issued for what we needed, body armor plate, et cetera, et cetera. And then we went down to, obviously, South Turner. Uh, our J2 picture throughout the whole of transit wasn't the best. I think we got the first J2 picture when we landed in Minad to say that like there is potential that the situation might drastically change. Unsure yet, but there's potential. Minad is the base that you were at the last stopping point before you got into Kabul. Exactly that, yeah. Minad was the stopping point before we got to Kabul. So at that time, we obviously analysed that information and we were like that. We need to get kit and equipment, like a personal protective equipment, off some of the pallets because the RAF were literally just looking at flying us a normal flight into Kabul like they had done for the Herrick era. So we had to liaise with the RAF and get some kit and equipment off the pallet, enabling us to be ready when we landed in Kabul. And just for context in this changing picture, so up until this point, when you'd been deployed out to Afghanistan, you'd fly into Kabul and then you'd go through a theatre entry package, prepare yourself, and then you'd be moved out to do your specific operation. You were now being prepared to land in fighting order with weapons loaded so that if you had to, you'd be able to immediately move into whatever operation was required up to and including combat. Exactly that. That was the mindset at the time, but we were still unsure of what the situation was on the ground. We were ready to go, but there were bits of bobs, which wasn't exactly perfect. But the the flights that came in after us, everything was good to go the second they got off the plane. And I think the company that landed behind us, I think the second they got off the plane, they dispatched one of their platoons to us to help us out on the airfield. And so you landed on the afternoon of the 14th and you then moved into looking after the perimeter of the airfield. Chris, you talked about the changing picture, changing orders coming down. Did you go up to the plane and like deliver the orders there? It wasn't far off of that. There were other people also guarding the perimeter, Americans, sucks, etc. So I wouldn't want anyone to think that we were doing all of it. The the company landed, they came off the plane, and I then went into border control area and essentially found the platoon commands and platoon sergeant and said, right, these are now the tasks which we're going to do, which you haven't expected to do, but here are the orders. Um, we're now going to conduct the preparation for it, and then we're going to go and do it. And there is no RSOI. There is no, you know, go and find your accommodation, unpack, get shown around the camp, this is where the cookhouse is, et cetera, et cetera. There's none of that. There is where the radio is coming from. Have we got enough ammunition? The thumbs up that everyone's got, all of their all their uh, first aid kit. Um, where's the mapping coming from? So we're going through all of this and essentially retasking ourselves immediately and one of the things happened that evening was that the perimeter was broken by Afghan nationals trying to flee because it was that night that the Taliban takeover of Kabul finally happened in a confirmed way and people wanted to get out. What was going on for you and how did you react to that situation? Whereabouts were you when this happened, Chris? And whereabouts were you, Adam? I think I was in the ops room at the time. One of my platoons had been tasked to take a convoy down down to the Abbey Gate and to the Baron Hotel to 
Plexum British Nationals. And the platoon commander who did that, he got into those vehicles, he drove out of the Abbey Gate, and then he's confronted by crowds of people that he's got to get these vehicles through. For him to have done that, I thought was hugely impressive. So that was just like a really good example of mission command. You said to him, you need to get there. And then you just trusted him to do it. He said, this is the situation. And he said, I trust you. Just do what you need to do to make it happen. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I wasn't in a position where I could see what the road looked like. So it was unclear to me what he was going into. I thought it was just going to drive out the gate, drive down to the hotel, pick up the people and come back. Very simple. It wasn't. Uh, We didn't have particularly good radio communications. We found that out in flight, as you always do. Um, He couldn't get through to me to tell me that. He knew what he had to do and he just cracked on and he did it. My other platoon then, they were basically guarded in a place called Casa Italia, which was where those nationals were being brought back to. They were then going to be processed by the RAF and then loaded onto, onto the flight. And then throughout all of that, we then got news that the perimeter had been breached and essentially to go and see what we could do with whomever we had available. I think I took a multiple from those at Casa Italia. And then I think I met you back in the... Um, uh the sort of the company base location that we had because then we just grabbed a composite of it, it was brilliant in terms of a mindset of it was like right we need people who's here like the the cqms is here it's like right who, who have you got i've got two of my sawmen with me right bring them who else have we got here oh we've got a couple of drivers and mt right lads get your kit and they're all up for it and we just then created more multiples and then went straight out onto the um onto the airfield uh essentially to, to go and go right who can we find to help out and to do something. Got out there, found an American officer, said, what's going on? He said, I don't know what's going on. So, okay, well, um, how can we help? He said, you can go and start trying to clear that area over there. So, all right, off we go. So you weren't necessarily getting particularly clear orders from your chain of command because their situational awareness wasn't amazing. And also radios were down, but you just reacted to what you had to do based on the tasks you'd already been given. And you two then took your composite multiples out onto the airfield and just responded to the situation there. Yeah, the the night concluded with the perimeter being breached. We cleared the perimeter again, but there was probably about 60 Afghan nationals in the back of an American C-17 that obviously when the perimeter had been breached, they ran straight towards the back of an open aircraft. And there were about 60 of them in an aircraft and... It took us a couple of hours to liaise with the Americans, try and find out what was going on. And I think in the end, instead of trying to get them off, the plane just took off with them on it and landed wherever it landed. With them still in it? Yeah, with them still in it. This must have been a very chaotic couple of days because there was another perimeter breach the following day. Is that right? This was the daytime one that we've seen some of the terrible pictures from on the news. And how were you leading and commanding at this time? What level of control did you retain and what level of mission command did you give to both platoon commanders and sergeants to just get on with things we knew it had been breached the following morning obviously that got passed down from higher that it had been breached i think at the time the oc was in the ops room i think he sent a runner down to us at our like base location where we were and it was sergeant adams who was there at the time in the base location so he went straight onto the airfield with his two multiples and went to see what was going on Obviously, he was already ready to go. There was another couple of multiples back at the base location with me. So we got everyone else ready to go. Sergeant Adams was already forward making decisions. It had been there for about 45 minutes to an hour. We turned up with the rest of the company, I think, at that time. 
And that was the first experience of me seeing all them people. There must have been tens of thousands of people in front of where they were, like the OC alluded to earlier on. It wasn't just our call sign there. The Americans were there. I think it was the 10th Mountain Division. They were there. Uh, the Turks were there. Everyone who, who was physically in Kabul at that time on that airfield was trying to stop tens of thousands of people creep onto the airfield. What was this like for you? Because this is a very public event that's going on and you're fully aware that a decision one way or the other could have massive implications. How do you manage that level of giving people the autonomy they need to get things done, but also giving them those control measures? What kind of information were you feeding down? Because I imagine for both of you, the idea of having such a tightly packed number of soldiers with that many Afghan nationals that close would have been unthinkable in previous tours. Felt incredibly vulnerable because it wasn't a scenario that we had anticipated. We we did public order preparation prior to deploying, but our public order preparation was very much focused around sort of riot control, petrol bombers, big, large, aggressive crowds using um, projectiles, etc. What we were faced with was a very large, very desperate crowd. They just wanted to force their way through us in order to get to the aircraft. So we weren't able to deploy the tactics or the techniques that we would normally have been accustomed to. And we found ourselves essentially in just one long extended line, quite large spacings um, in between individuals. We did not have sufficient manpower to get to a position where you could uh, link arms or anything like that. And with um, not a hostile crowd, but a, a desperate crowd who are trying to push past and you're trying to then force them back and to control that. So in terms of you know, how do I then direct what was going on, I think I just kept it really simple of, we need to make sure this crowd does not get any further onto the runway, because if it does, the runway can't work. If the runway can't work, we can't get more troops in, and we need more troops in order to control the situation so that we can actually get to a stage where we're evacuating people. And that was then the essence of, you, d you don't need any more than that. You, you know, don't let the crowd come any further forward. That's all you need. Like it's a testament to the type of characters we end up within our regiment, and especially at that level in their career when they're section commanders, when they're platoon sergeants, when they're platoon commanders, they understand what job needs to be done off a basic set of orders. And also looking at a situation and staring it in the eyes and knowing that their reaction can filter a situation one way or another. This wasn't a riot situation. The crowds were there, but there were desperation in people's eyes. The bloke showed compassion in them situations. Instead of there being petrol bombers, there were humanitarian issues. There were elderly people going down because it was too hot and the medics were on call to deal with them. There were babies that needed water and the medics were on call to deal with them. And it was a dynamic situation that was evolving all the time. And ultimately, all they needed was keep these people off the airfield. So you were having to maintain the perimeter and the cordon, but also you were providing aid to the people at the time. And it's that point that you've just made, like it has a strategic effect. One choice made there will have an impact on that crowd, but it has an impact also on the UK's international reputation. It's a huge amount of responsibility. That was also the time when the Taliban started to appear and effectively conduct crowd control. I imagine for both of you, the last time you saw Taliban before that was in a very different context. How did you respond and adapt when somebody said, we're going to start liaising with the Taliban? We'd been on the airfield for uh, quite some time by this stage. 
And it was you know, physically very hot. The weight of the personal protective equipment was fairly significant. And whilst the crowd's not hostile, it was hard work because it was, it was very physical of pushing people back, forcing them back. And essentially all the private soldiers and the NCOs were using their, their physical presence and their, and their character to force this crowd back and say, we are in control, you are not. That was hard work. And then you added on top of that, this point where the, some of the soldiers then said, right, there's, there's people who are armed out there. And they were saying, we've seen individuals with AKs, with RPGs. At which point, we're like, right, so now there's Taliban in the crowd, not certain what's about to happen here. We immediately postured ourselves so that if, they, if the Taliban had started to engage us, then we could have responded appropriately, but it would have been um, very challenging. And then this American dude rocked up on a on a little e-bike and said, uh, uh, you know, don't don't shoot their friendly Taliban. And I think that was where one of the sergeants was like, what's a friendly Taliban? But it turns out that from other parts of um of the military, these these negotiations have been ongoing and there was some form of uh either I don't know, truce, compromise, whatever you want to call it. So that was how we got our orders to, to say, do not engage the Taliban. From a guy on a bike. Yep. And we didn't. And then the Taliban used some fairly violent methods to uh, force the crowd away from the perimeter. But like the initial part of that, the first sight of Taliban, I think, came from a junior soldier. So not only were we controlling that situation, I think at the time we'd pulled a couple of people who had had the sharpshooters back from the crowd control situation. And they were standing just behind the baseline, scanning the field if you've been brought up in a world where you know Afghanistan is full of Taliban, which myself was, which the OC was, which platoon sergeants were, which some of the section commanders were, that thought is always at the back of your mind. So we had measures for this, pull back, see what we can identify in the crowd if anything happens. But I think it got identified by one of the young soldiers in the baseline. And I think this is down to the mission command bit that the section commanders were well-versed enough to say, look, this situation doesn't dictate any type of kinetic action. This dictates us passing it up through the chain of command, seeing what's going on. But it's just testament to how well the blokes can judge a situation. And so that was down to your section commanders looking after their sections. Exactly. And then their private soldiers having the presence of mind and self-control, the moral courage and, and courageous restraint to pass information on rather than just fire when they've seen somebody in a potentially threatening posture. It's quite remarkable. It was a really interesting dynamic of command and control where so a, an, an ops room is essentially doing con- control and they were directing us as they had been briefed. The situation had changed. So their direction that they were given to us was for us to withdraw the company from the airfield because they were understanding that the perimeter was now being taken over by the Americans and therefore we were no longer required and we could be extracted. Where we were on the ground, that was not the situation we were absolutely required. Um, and I did find it quite challenging because essentially what I'm receiving are uh, direction from the ops room, bring your company off, but faced with a situation where to do so, would have just left a gaping hole in the perimeter which the crowd we we knew would come through. And this is just before the Taliban have emerged at this point, so the crowd's all still there. And what it taught me there was that you've got to put in your mind what's, what people are seeing at different levels of, of command. 
So what people are seeing back in the ops room is not necessarily what we're seeing. That's why they're doing controls. So when the Sergeant Major went back to get the CO, and I was incredibly grateful the CO then came out because he's the one who is making the command decisions. And ultimately, it's, it's going to be him who's held accountable if, if we do something which proves not to be um, the right decision. As soon as he came out and he, he looked at what, uh, what we were faced with, then that changed the, the nature of our task um, immediately. And that was fantastic. So that was, that was quite clear cut to me of you know, a difference um, between uh, command and control. So it's respectfully challenging decisions based on the information you have on the ground, but also based on what you know, what your mission and tasks are, and you know that a particular direction would maybe undermine that mission and task, challenging respectfully, finding a way to then give your chain of command the information that they need for them to make the decision. You've got missions and tasks and you've got intent. The intent was to secure the airfield because it's only by doing that that you can enable the evacuation. So as our task became, right, you need to come back in order to then move on to set up the evacuation handling center. So, okay, well, that that goes against what the intent is. And that then says to me, what's more important? Well, it's the airfield. I'm making a judgment now on the ground. I'm making a judgment that is more important for us to stabilize the perimeter than to move to the, to the next stage. We're not ready to move to the next stage. So I think that was what was clear then. The missions and tasks weren't appropriate for the intent. Based on the information, based had on the as situation, well. we could we could we could see there, there and then. Um, so the right thing, the absolute right thing to do was, um, yeah, if you're going to command, you've got to get to a position where you can see the situation and then make the decisions. So the company's had a very tiring time out in the airfield doing this crowd control. The airfield has now been cleared, and you're going to be retasked for this route clearance uh, down by the Baron Hotel on Route Leeds, which is the road outside the hotel. How did you reconstitute and prepare the company for that next mission and task? We pulled off the airfield, we then established ourselves at another part of, of the base. We were aware that the situation was changing constantly and our tasks were also changing very quickly. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we're, we're fresh. We need to get into some kind of routine. And we also need to minimize everything that we have with us to only what's absolutely critical in order to move from location to location and to conduct different tasks. So I remember uh, the CQMS coming down, the Salt Major um, having a chat with um, myself, and then we, we made a decision of, right, actually, we're, we're now going to get rid of everything superfluous. We brought out, you know, Bergen's holdalls with us because we didn't know how long, initially, we didn't know how long this task was going to last. So, right, get rid of all of that and just have what you need on the man in, in order to work. Um, Try to get into a semblance of routine. But very quickly, I think we moved to that base location in the morning. And by lunchtime, we then had to get down to the Abbey Gate. There was a transport plan put in place. An hour later, none of the transport had materialised, at which point the summit agent I chatted him about, right, we, again, intent. We know what's intended for us. Someone's very kindly organised this transport plan. It's not turning up. We know the situation is chaotic. Do you know what? We'll, we'll move ourselves. So we acquired vehicles from various places. And then, and then just moved moved the company down to the Abbey Gate, got down there, established that right we're we're not about to immediately start a task. So again, get into get into some shade, get some rest, get some water, and wait to find out what's next. And it, it's testament to the attitude of of everyone there that certainly I didn't hear any shimping or complaining or anything. It was just very much people we like right, we're we told when we're told, and you know whatever whatever we're doing, good. At least we're doing something. Up pitting is a fine example of everything i think the army are trying to develop now things like expeditionary tactics we were literally finding things that we could make use of 
and making use of them and vehicles being one of them things. You then had this time where you were manning the barriers outside the Baron Hotel and your company having to pick people out of the crowd who would then be processed to leave Afghanistan. Privates, lance corporals who'd been given information about who was eligible. That sounds like one of the hardest things for any person to do. I think back on decisions I've made in my life and think, oh, I wish I could have done that differently. At that time, how did you help those young privates and lance corporals through that situation? I suppose the OC was the person giving the direction. He was the person giving the orders. He was the person saying, these are the things you need to look for before you pull that person out of the crowd. And you've got the human aspect. And I think that's the bit you're alluding to here. The bit that an 18-year-old lad is seeing a mother and her two children in front of them and they didn't have paperwork and stood to the left-hand side of them were two gentlemen with a passport. And it was a hard decision for them to make. They understood what they had to do because they were the orders from the OC. And I was their moral compass to say, look, I understand that's a frustrating matter, but they need to come. I think for me, it was, if you're going to go by example, the moment either of us had shown emotional compromise and allowed emotions to dictate whom perhaps should be prioritised over whom else, that would have then set an example for others. So actually for, for us, I, I like to think what we did was not to, not to show that. And by making some of those choices, that might have helped two partners and the NCOs to then make similar choices. It's just going to be black and white. You either have the documentation or you don't. And if you don't, sorry. The reality is you were helping get thousands of people out of Afghanistan. I think the original estimate was 5,000 people might have been evacuated and 15,000 eventually left through you guys and the RAF. Was that how you helped these soldiers cope with it? Because I presume from time to time when they came off the line, you were then having to manage some of those emotional challenges for them. Were they struggling with it and then you'd have to talk to them? Or was it taken away by what you guys had already done? I don't think anyone was, was struggling. Um, certainly there are times where people might have, might have questioned, but you know, testament to, to all of those who were there, I don't think anyone struggled to do it. It helped that you were able to phrase it in exactly that way of, yes, there are people who aren't getting out, but when you come off one of the perimeters outside the um, Baron Hotel and you walk inside, being able to say, well, actually, look, look around, look at all of those, look at all the families that we are getting out. So there's a balance to be found. And we're doing a, we're doing a lot of good here. And, and essentially, the, the more control that we can maintain over the situation, that's the key bit. The more control we maintain over the situation, the more people will get out. So those tough choices enable you to maintain control, which enables you to get more people out. And do you know what? It might then end up that that group of people that you really wanted to help, it might be that you do get them out, but it's just in you know several hours' time or a day's time um, or so. I think when we were fully set up down the Baron, we were evacuating like 300 a day. By the end, when the IUD went off, we got up to like 1,800 a day. That's quite a remarkable increase in numbers coming through there. And it was just testament of the bloke's attitude towards it. It was testament the command and control all the way through from the platoon commander to the section commanders down to the private soldiers. 
And for you guys, you're you're setting that from the very top, and it's leading by example, being out there on the line yourself, doing the work with them, showing them, as you were talking about, Chris, like what what are the decisions to be made that then makes it easier for others, but also explaining the intent. This means this. The reason why we're making these choices is because it enables this to happen further on down the line. So you're using many different ways to enable that mission to happen. But the intensity must have been quite different to what you've done on tours before. How did the intensity of this compare to other times you'd been on operations in Afghanistan? And how did you maintain that level of work? When you're in a two-way firing range, when a person is shooting back at you, it's quite an easy situation to deal with because everyone then instantly knows the intent. This wasn't that intent. This, this wasn't that scenario. This was a completely different scenario. This was a scenario fueled by compassion and empathy, I suppose. This was a scenario that is quite hard to determine unless you were there at the time. And I suppose it was quite easy to deal with because they could see what they were doing at the lowest possible level, they had the most outrageous responsibility. And they could see that. They could see the person who they'd pulled out of the crowd when they came off the line and they walked back to where we were accommodated. They could see that person in a line getting ready to be processed by the border force. And then when they came back on duty, they could see that person get loaded into a vehicle to drive to the airport for a better life. And taking this all the way through, I think you recently met one of the Afghans who'd been interpreting for the British Army during those Herrick operations, who you'd helped him and his wife and son. You spotted the paper, took him through the crowd, and I think you recently met him back here in the UK. We pulled thousands of people out of that crowd. So there were probably numerous amount of things that swayed me towards look at him a strong family unit. He had a young child, similar to what we've all got back home. But on top of all of that, it was that he had the correct paperwork. And I wouldn't even looked at him twice unless I saw the correct paperwork. I genuinely do remember the time I pulled him out because his wife is a doctor. She's actually training to be a doctor, a gynecologist in the UK. She's just going through a few English language courses until she gets to that stage. But I remember standing on the side of the canal and I, I had a cigarette at that time and I, the lady took the cigarette out of my mouth and threw it on the floor and told me smoking is bad for me. And I just remember laughing and thinking, oh my God. But then they recognized me by a picture that was in the Telegraph during op pitting. So some photographer from the Telegraph had took a picture. It was on the front page of the Telegraph. And that's how they recognized that was the person who pulled me out of the crowd. And eventually we connected. Were there lots of difficult decisions that you had to make that would have been obvious in other situations that you had to do there? So there were difficult decisions. There was on the airfield, turn around and um, right, these, this is the direction you're receiving and saying, actually, I, that does not feel like what we should be doing. But that was that was quite difficult because we're, we're always brought up to follow orders. And an officer speaks with the CO's authority, so they do tell you, oh, you've been told to do this. So that was quite challenging. You then had the you know the emotional compromise that we've spoken about. That's challenging. There was a period where the canal was being used as a as a physical barricade, and on top of the canal we had put barbed wire because that stopped people climbing out onto the edge. And once one or two people climbed onto the edge, very quickly you found that they then stopped helping more people out, and then you lost control. You lose control, less people get evacuated. 
So I remember walking down the canal at one point and some individuals were on the edge of the canal and I spoke to one of the NCOs said they need to get off the wall because in this specific scenario, you risk losing control. That was quite difficult because of the vulnerability of these these people. And in the end, I thought, actually, the best thing I can do now here is to do the actions myself. I'm asking someone to do something which is pretty unpleasant. Actually, I'll do, I'll do it myself and therefore hopefully, you know, articulate that I'm also prepared to do it. So eventually the Americans left and you guys left at the same time and came back at the end of what pitting, having evacuated over 15,000 people. You talked about some of the difficult decisions you've had to make, talked about positive outcomes like meeting the families that you helped evacuate. As a battalion, was there a sort of enduring trim process you had to go through compared to other operations where your friends and your peers have, have died whilst in combat? It's a different form of trauma. Has dealing with things like moral injury been something that has been difficult? And how have you managed that as leaders afterwards? So I think people did actually witness a fair amount of trauma in a, in a different guise. Yes, there was the horrific scenario of the IED. But prior to that, there had been a number of equally horrific scenarios, made more so because these weren't combatants who were being injured and killed. These were, uh, these were civilians, these were the people that you're here to protect. We came back to a hasty decompression that was set up in a COVID era. At the time, I remember thinking, the last thing I want to do is sit around in Merville barracks, cooped up, as it were. I don't believe in the process. You know, I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll sort things out myself. Retrospectively, that um, lesson I'll take away from this is that was the right thing to do. The right thing to do was to take everybody who came back, put them together, put on a number of um, events to enable people to, to decompress and to think about other things, but also just, just sit in people together so that they can, then can talk about it and they can then decompress. And that probably... I think maybe maybe that's what helps people to process trauma so it, then it doesn't become a hindrance to them in the future and they don't find that they have you know, negative uh, health connotations as a result. So, yeah, decompression. wasn't a fan of it initially, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. I think that end part of how Pitting ended in Merville Barracks for 10 days of decompression, you've got to remember that 60 70% of that company are still together. They still talk about their moments they still it, it, it's like it happened yesterday and i don't think they will really struggle in that world until they don't have them conversations again having them conversations with them type of people if 22 years service and i've never seen anything like that before you, and you had to be there you had to see it you had to smell it you had to hear it and unless you were there and unless the person next to you is there, you can't really quantify what it was like there. Without pitting it due to an end, 20 years of British operations in Afghanistan. And for you, Adam, you'd been there right at the beginning on Opfinger all the way through to the final operation, which is quite remarkable. For both of you, in terms of your experience of working together on that operation, are there lessons from leadership you've taken on that you've then passed on to other people? about particular OC company sergeant major relationship? Yeah, I think absolutely. Like I've passed on what I've experienced from my time as a company sergeant major in a company onto my replacement. 
Oppitin shaped my handover takeover notes. It's taught me something new about something I didn't think I knew about. And I've seen like every conflict there is to see over the last two decades. The Northern Ireland campaign, the Iraq campaign, the Afghanistan campaign. And at every level for the lads in my company at the time, whether that be a Lance Corporal, whether that be a section commander, whether that be a platoon sergeant, I can give a breadth of knowledge to every single one of them that when I joined, people couldn't do to me. So I would say the the two of you, as an OCE and a commissar major, you are at the head of the company. I would say never underestimate just how much impact your behaviours might have. And you're a team. And you've got to see yourselves as part of a team. So my advice to you know, anyone who's just starting on that pathway, you know, at any level, um, you know, between commander and between sergeant, is once you first meet one another, invest heavily in trying to get to know one another and finding out what makes you tick, what issues do you agree on, what issues do you not agree on, what do you think about this, what do you think about that? We had a number of conversations uh, you know, where we discussed you know, all range of things from military to non-military, which then really helped us get an understanding of how do the two of us think, which then influences how we're going to behave, which will then influence how the company as a, as a whole uh, will act. So it's a team effort. The two of you are greater than the sum of your parts, and you need to learn as much as you can about one another's thoughts and one another's behaviours. Thank you to both of you for sharing your stories and for giving us some insights on what was a remarkable and difficult operation. Major Dunkoff, WO2 Croucher, thank you very much. It was a real privilege to speak to WO2 Croucher and Major Dunkoff about op pitting because it really put into context and reality a lot of leadership lessons. The first is about the mindset and preparation that you need before going out there and the decision they made to let their soldiers go on leave, but knowing that they would be ready to deploy as soon as they were needed. Then there was matters of mission command and giving people simple orders, the information that they needed with simple constraints and control measures, but also the intent. So everybody knew what was the purpose. Protect the perimeter of the airfield and then the Brown Hotel to control the crowd so that the evacuation can happen. Within that, there was examples of challenging leadership decisions by giving people the situational awareness that they needed. And then there was leading by example. When difficult decisions had to be made, both Adam and Chris would do things themselves, which then made it easier for the rest of their soldiers to be able to follow those orders. And in the end, they eventually got out triple the number of people than had originally been anticipated. This was an episode of The Human Advantage from the Centre for Army Leadership. It was produced and presented by Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of the Feast Collective. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.